to another edition of Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where it seems we've finally moved beyond the Thunderdome in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 41, which begins with Max being sent into exile, and it ends with a look at Bartertown after the sun has gone down. Here to help us transition into Act 2 are Andy Nelson and Steve Sarmento from the Next Real Film Podcast. Hello, hello. Glad to be back. And finally... Glad to be beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> the name is finally <laughs> making sense. <laughs> that was a lot of prologue to get to the actual meat of what this movie's about. Like, exposition heavy. Come on, let's get beyond Thunderdome already. <laughs> <laughs> At the very top of this minute, we've got a tiny little bit, just about a second and a half of Auntie's close-up from Monday's minute as she's looking down at Max standing next to the wheel. I have trouble reading her reaction to this, and as uh, as I think about wheels and uh, fate, uh, you know, and we are in an era of '90s nostalgia. Uh, rewatching this uh, segment. Reminded me of the uh, cartoon, if you remember from the, I think, early to mid-90s, the Animaniacs, and occasionally they would end their episode with the Wheel of Morality, which would often spit out uh, very confusing or useful, sometimes, statements. Uh, sometimes the Wheel of Morality was broken, and I'm wondering if Auntie's looking at this, wondering if she thinks her wheel is broken like the Wheel of Morality. <laughs> Oh, the wheel of morality. Turn, turn, turn. Tell us the lesson that we should learn. That's right. <laughs> Love it. I always interpreted Auntie's expression as being satisfied, looking at the situation, being like, Gulag, I can live with that. Yeah, she definitely has that look on her face like, yeah, that's I, I am. This is going to get me the feeling of revenge that I need right now. Mm -hmm. Now, Julia, you're a big fan of the Harry Potter series, as we've said multiple times yes. in several situations. Auntie's expression is very subdued in this situation, which is why we're talking about it. But I imagine that you could take the actor who played Uncle Vernon in that first Harry Potter movie where... Oh, is it the first one or is which which is the the Harry Potter movie where Harry gets in trouble and he gets a letter sent to the house and <laughs> is it the second one? No, it's the fifth one. Because there's a situation where Vernon is basically alerted because he's in the room when the news is delivered that Harry has been expelled from Hogwarts and Vernon goes, Ah yes, justice. <laughs> <laughs> and I would love to have Vernon Dursley in this situation watching on to just dance around ah, shouting ah, justice gulag gulag just dancing around <laughs> prancing around inside thunderdome he may actually be a little disappointed that it didn't land on amputation or hard labor or something more gruesome than exile. Mm -hmm. Well, I think she she realizes now he's he's out. He's no longer a problem she has to deal with. Mm -hmm. If he's going to be cast out the gulag that okay, great. She does he's no longer a problem because he's proven to be an unpredictable element and that I think is something that's, you know, troubling and upsetting to her. So getting his, this outside factor out of Bartertown, she can resume dealing with 
her, you know, sort of known elements that she's got to deal with, with Master Blaster, all of that. She knows how the politics of that are going to work. Max, as is sort of the unpredictable outside factor, this eliminates that from her game now. And I think maybe she's perhaps pleased with that because she can get back to playing her game the way she likes to play it. Even though her whole plan was revealed by Max, I mean, she is, she did get what she wanted, right? I mean, because because Blaster's dead and yeah. oh, now yes. she will be able to control everything in Bartertown, both the, the top and the underworld. And the last detail of the deal was that Max leave Bartertown and never come back. Mm-hmm. Mm. So it's concluding yeah. the same way anyways. Right. Okay. Yeah. It seems like it's it works. Works out for her. And uh, yeah, it works out for her and, uh, it, and, and they get to keep the camels, I guess. And his weapons. Mm-hmm. Well, they were auctioning off the camels as he walked into town. So I don't know that. Well, sure. Yeah. Well, they get the, the profits. They get the profits from his camels. Right. So yeah. yeah. Barter Town is getting the cut from that sale mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. And they'll have taken possession of the weapons and also taken possession of Max's car mm-hmm. that presumably Master Blaster traded for. We're assuming that it was a fair trade because that's how things are supposed to work in Barter Town, fair trades. But now that Master Blaster has been taken down several, several notches, I would assume that Auntie would take possession of that. Yeah, add it to her vehicle fleet. Yeah, which she has quite a quite a fancy bunch of them. I know you're not talking about them for quite some time, but uh, uh, it will be uh, fun to go through the list when they do appear. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. She's got quite the ragtag group. As we transition away from the Thunderdome, we get a lovely wipe that brings us out into the desert. Real quick, because uh, uh, yeah, I, I, the wipe caught my eye because we do have a couple wipes across the minutes that we're talking about. And I wasn't paying attention before um, in the rest of the film, but do they? does George Miller use wipes a lot in, in the film and in this, in this series? Because it struck me as such like a, a George Lucas sort of thing with Star Wars to see that wipe pop up. Is, that, is it common in these? As I've been going through, I've definitely noticed that there are just about as many wipes and fades as there are hard cuts. Interesting. I'd say that George Miller definitely transitions between them. I think he uses the wipes a lot when we're moving from major location to major location. Hmm. Obviously, he used a smash cut when he went from Auntie's penthouse down into Underworld. But as we transition, as we're going to see in the weeks coming from the Great White Nothing or whatever we're calling the desert to the crack in the earth, he's going to be using a lot of fades to show the gradual progression of time. It's not as egregious as Lucas, but it is there. (laughs) (laughs) This one did feel particularly Star Warsian because we are wiping to a desert scene. Yes, yes. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, we've been spending a lot of time in a quarry outside Sydney. <laughs> and with this wipe, we are flying back out to Cooper Pedy, thousands of kilometers away <laughs> to an area called the Breakaways, which is where we first saw that faraway shot of Bartertown. This is locationally consistent between where we were then and where we are now. This particular uh, stretch of the of the wasteland here, it um, I, it's I don't know. I just find it such an interesting landscape because it's it's like such a hard rock desert, and then you turn around and look at it, and it's just like flowing white sands. It just it struck me as such a I don't know a, a strange area. I wasn't actually sure if. When we see the shot of of uh, Max on the horse and everything, and then we cut to the reverse shot, if if they were actually shot in the same place. Well, fun fact: as I mentioned, they had gone back to Cooper Pedy 
to shoot the scene where everyone's standing along the ridges. In fact, that large, seemingly bleached section of rock is called the castle as part of the Breakaways National Park. You can go and you can check it out. Hmm. It takes a long time to get there, but you can actually visit that specific landmark and it probably looks roughly the same as it does here. But when we cut from the angle where all of the people are standing on the ridge and the guards are there and Max is led up on the horse and we cut to the opposite angle looking past Max over into those dunes, according to the filming locations page, on madmaxmovies.com, which is always a good resource for this type of information. Those dunes were filmed outside of Sydney. Huh. So from going one angle to the other, we jump many thousands of kilometers. Ah, movie magic. Yeah, it takes about 21 hours to drive from the breakaways to Sydney. It takes only 17 hours to fly, though. (laughs) So that's good. Wait, 17 hours? Australia, you can't be that big. <laughs> I mean, from here? No, no, no. From Cooper PD to Sydney. Okay. Is it because there it's has to be all small, like yeah. hopper flights? Exactly. It's not like oh, okay. you can jump on a giant plane oh. and go super fast. Okay. Seventeen hours <laughs> by gyrocopter. Okay. Then <laughs> that makes sense. Okay. Okay. The distance is sort of equivalent from starting in New York City, New York, and driving to Grand Rapids. Not the one in Michigan, the one in Minnesota. Oh, okay. Because there are two Grand Rapids. Okay. <laughs> it's pretty far. Okay. But it is kind of cool that you you're over here in this part of the country for one shot and then you spin around real fast and you're suddenly somewhere completely different yeah i was gonna make a comment about how crazy it is that deserts can change so fast and how interesting that is and while that may be true that's not what's going on here nope Okay. Movie magic. <laughs> Movie magic. But they, they design it nicely, though, because of that white, I guess, whatever you called it, the castle yeah. that's back there. It, it is that same white. So it actually, uh, it's, you know, it fooled me. I think it actually worked pretty nicely. It, it feels like it could have been the same place. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you definitely get the sense of it's an area of transition that the rocky area around Bartertown is giving way to this just vast white expanse. You know, as I was watching this minute and I was seeing all of these, uh, you know, I don't know, a couple hundred people or so uh, up on the cliffs watching, it made me wonder, is this uh, sort of thing? I mean, it probably doesn't happen that often. Is this just kind of part of the fun of the day at Bartertown? Oh, hey, we get to go watch somebody get uh, thrown into the gulag. Uh, let's all go out and watch. Or do you think that, Auntie, is, is it like required for Bartertown citizens to go out there and, and, and view this? Well, what else is there to do? <laughs> I, I kind of think it's voluntary. I think this is another part of the entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. It's... I mean, because I mean, I mean, it, it can't happen that often because we saw that such a, you know, as we discussed, you know, previously that, you know, this option on the wheel is a, you know, relatively small percentage. And I can't imagine, now going back to hard labor, as we discussed earlier in the week, do they have a warehouse full of these giant paper mache heads? Or maybe, you know, is that, because they can't be like, oh, well, geez, we got another gulag this week. Go pull another head out of the pile and, and put it on somebody that we're going to send out into the desert. And then horses. I'm thinking they're, so you're, you're losing a paper mache head, you know, valuable resource, but also the horse. Uh, do they have a stockpile of horses that they're with? And so I, I think, again, this 
cannot be that common of an occurrence, which I think then merits the, we're interested to see what, what happens when we launch this guy out into the desert, because it doesn't happen that often. A little change up from the regular routine of Barter Town, uh, something unique. And uh, I mean, I think it's, it's sort of like watching golf. You just sort of sit down, watch, and slowly he fades off into the distance. Not the most thrilling thing, but at least it's something rather than getting back to work. The novelization of the screenplay does give us a little bit more detail about this scene in particular. There is a feature that I don't believe is in the movie at all, is that there are 32 poles in the ground around this general area that represent 32 people who have been sent on the gulag before Max. And Max is the 33rd. Which makes me wonder how often they are spinning that wheel. (laughs) Yeah. With only a 9% chance. I'm sure there's math. (laughs) (laughs) Yay, math. That if there's a 9% chance and 33 people have landed on it, how many times have they spun that wheel? And that's just a lot. It also makes me wonder, like, how, I mean, are people checking under the wheel? Like, do they... (laughs) If they know, hey, you know what? Maybe it's rigged. Let's rig this so so people are going to hit this one more because hey, we've got a lot of heads, and let's let's send more people out to the gulag. Or hey, we need more hard labor. Let's rig it this go around so that we get more people landing in the camp. Raise a good point. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, basic math skills tell me if I round up the nine percent to ten percent. So you're talking about three hundred and thirty odd, you know, spins of the wheel. If you know ten percent, if 10% chance of on the on the gulag and we've had 33 so math tells me 3 300 broken deals now maybe that happens more often in barter town than we are led to assume or it's you know again is that over a decade of barter town we don't know how long barter town we don't have coming into town barter town established in uh, you know, this year. So <laughs> it, it, it's you know, over over several years, you, you could probably rack up a good, you know, 300 violations that have ended up in the wheel that uh, give us 30 or so people out in the gulag. So let's say they've been around for 10 years. That's 30 or so wheel spins per year. Yeah, that's like one every other week. Yeah. Yeah. That actually seems reasonable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like once every two weeks, they have a broken deal. Somebody comes into town that hasn't been there before or somebody's, you know, just pressing their luck and uh, breaks a deal. Yeah. I don't want to delve too much into the numbers. We're not the mad math minute to <laughs> call back to a comment by Jonathan Howell, former guest of the show on our Facebook page. But I'm sure if you spend enough time working it out, you can figure out how many times they usually spin it. But I like that idea that, you know, they're spinning it on average, you know, once every week or so. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Mm -hmm. And that's not including times people go to Thunderdome. Right. And we haven't really talked much about the difference between break a deal, spin the wheel and going to Thunderdome. Yeah, I think going to Thunderdome is you have a specific problem with this person. They have a problem with you. And the only recourse is mano a mano combat. But it would have to be a problem with them that didn't involve a deal. Right. Yeah. Because this was a dispute over ownership of the car is what got Max into Thunderdome. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, there was no deal that was being broken by one or both of the parties. It's Max wanted to put his fist into Master's face. The guards stopped the fight, and then Master called for Thunderdome. Like it was very organized in its relative chaos. Well, it's part of it's part of the setup, right? Auntie, you know, they want to get into Thunderdome, so Max has to get into a situation where he's gonna basically he's gonna pick a fight. 
because then the consequence will be Thunderdome, and then that's the whole plan is, okay, now you take out, you know, Blaster in the Thunderdome. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, find a way. And, of course, you know, Max knows his car is out there. So, yeah, that's that's the setup. So, yeah, we have Thunderdome. Yeah, I guess that's the situation. We've got Thunderdome over here, which is – You've, you've got to, you know, pick a fight with somebody. You've got some type of dispute that isn't related to a deal. And then you've got break a deal, spin the wheel over here. We just happen to get both of them interconnected. But there could be wheel spinning going on for other things. Somebody comes in to, to trade and, you know, is deceptive about that. Or, and that would end up with a wheel spin over there without having, having gone through Thunderdome. I guess we should count ourselves lucky that we got to see both in one night. Yeah. Yeah. No wonder if, exciting. Yeah, everybody's all like, no wonder they're out there to see that, you know, everybody's just exactly. amped up on adrenaline. They're like, we had Thunderdome. We've got the <laughs> wheel. Now we're out here going out into the desert. I mean, this is the best day ever. <laughs> now, poor Pig Killer, he doesn't get to, I mean, I don't know that he's going to be allowed to be out there to, you know, be in the crowd, right? You know, he's, no, he's, I, don't he, I, I was wondering if he was back in the underworld. Yeah, he, he must be. So it's maybe just a select few. That uh, they get to the 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 select elite. They get to watch uh, you know, get a little time out in the desert. You know, a little time at the beach. <laughs> well, if I were out there, I would be much uh, happier. Uh, you know, wearing the uh, next to nothing that uh, Iron Bar is wearing, as opposed to what Doctor Dealgood is wearing. Because I mean, he has to be hot <laughs> yeah. in that outfit. I mean, yeah. it's like this massive, massive outfit that he's wearing. Giant shoulder pads, dark. <laughs> coat yes mm-hmm. yeah but the sequence i mean it reminds me of there's there's several movies where it seems like heroes get sort of like banished to the desert it's sort of like a, a very good like plot device that's often like we've, we're going to transition from one place to another we need this character to sort of suffer go through some type of exile uh, the thing that came to mind most for me was like conan the barbarian when he's you know sort of like out in the desert was he's like uh, tied to a tree or something we have sort of a a history of, you know, heroes being, you know, suffering out in the desert on their own and then being rescued. Yeah. Uh, so it sort of was a great sort of st- storytelling device that we've seen before, but it fit really well. It's a nice transition from now that we are going to go beyond Thunderdome. Let's, uh, it, you know, for me, this, we're in this sort of like, let's slow things down. We've gone through all the excitement of Thunderdome. So we're going to, we're going to take it down a couple notches. We're going to give the audience the time to, to sort of settle. And we've got, you know, just this very long shot of just the horse going out in the desert, sort of slow things down, give us time to, to collect ourselves and, and think about what's coming next. Yeah. You guys gave us a great, a great chance to have some minutes with very little dialogue. Yeah. We didn't have to suffer through too much of, of masters, uh, awkward patois that he speaks. Uh, you know, so, so, so we're grateful for that. Yeah. And this minute, yeah, it's just, it's like, there, it's just, you know, watching what's happening and uh, listening to a little bit of the music. It's, it, it's very nice actually to have kind of this, this break that uh, I, it was nice to see so conveniently packaged in this one minute here. Mel Gibson, again, after this, did the same exact scene almost in Maverick. Oh, that's there, another one. Tied to yes, horse, that's out right. In the desert. Yes, you're right. That I knew there was another one. I could not think of it, but I knew there was something with you know Mel Gibson out in the desert. Yes, that's that's, oh, that's such a great movie. Yes, it is such a great movie. <laughs> now the person that I thought of when we were talking about being stripped of rank, stripped of possession, and banished to the desert, I thought of the first Thor Marvel movie, where Thor has his hammer taken away, his powers stripped, and he's banished by Odin to the American Southwest. New Mexico, yeah. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) That's funny. Now, isn't that your neck of the woods? 
That's pretty close. Yeah, yeah, we're over in Phoenix, so not too far. And it, you know, looking at some of these shots, I feel like uh, I feel like home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just like Barter Town down here. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Come on, visit. Andy. I mean, Arizona is already the laughing stock of the nation in so many ways. Things like that don't help <laughs> us. Come on. <laughs> Well, I haven't been sent to the gulag yet, no, so I guess, no. I, I guess that counts as a win, right? <laughs> the novelization also adds another little interesting detail that I wanted to mention. Something we don't get in the movie in this scene is another speech from Dr. Dealgood. Really? And the book has one. And this is just from Max alone. He's up close to Max. And he says, death's found you, soldier, but he's going to take you like a lover. Hot and slow and full of pain. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I and, they, and they cut that out? <laughs> they cut that out. Yeah. Wow. That okay. is actually legitimately disappointing. It really that is. That is legitimately rapey. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's dark. That's... <laughs> wow. If they had left off the full of pain, then it would be fine. Yeah. But once you introduce full of pain into that sentence, it's not okay yeah. anymore. All right. What would you replace full of pain with? I don't know. <laughs> it, it, the structure does demand something in place of that, but I don't know. What does he say? He says hot, hot slow. Hot and slow and full of pain. I would probably replace full of pain with, you know, hot, slow, and uncomfortably gritty. See, I, I think Max would just reply with, that's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> and then he'd kick the horse himself. Yes. Exactly. He'd go out on his own terms. Are we talking about Max or Maverick? I can't remember. <laughs> Either one. Oh, man. So this giant head that Iron Bar is carrying and puts on Max's own head. I was unable to find any sort of reference as to who this character was. So I imagine it's one of those just generic lard lad, to make a Simpsons reference, type characters <laughs> yeah. that they just pulled off of a building somewhere and a wasteland wanderer brought into trade one day. Yeah, such a strange thing. And 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 where does it come from, too? I mean, I, it must be just laying on the ground there because Iron Bar doesn't walk up with it when we see him. It just all of a sudden he's got it in his hand and he he puts it up on top of his head. Uh, and it's, I don't know, it's, a, it's such a strange representation of like the, the dunce or something, you know, he put it on his head, on, backwards on the horse and then and, and make the horse ride out into the desert. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy punishment. And, and I love how they also have the bottle of water tied in front of the horse as if that really works. You know, to, <laughs> <laughs> the carrot on the stick. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I, I think you don't see Iron Bar carrying it because I think the head is probably almost at least half to three quarters his size already because he's not, he's not that big. And so I think to me, that would be a little humorous moment to see Iron Bar sort of waddling up with this giant head because then you've got Iron Bar and then you've got his kabuki mask and then this head. And that's just really confusing uh, to, to see visually track <laughs> little man with a smaller head and the big head. It's, that's just spooky and bizarre. But I wonder about the, the functionality sort of coming back to Andy's point about, you know, Dunn's cap or, you know, is this to actually make it worse for Max, you know, to make it hot and stifling there? Or is it to actually, you know, shield him from the sun to make him last a little bit longer so he's not baking directly in the sun, but to make this, you know, exile last a little bit longer, you're actually protecting him from the sun. And I, 
I don't know how humid it is out in that desert. We you know it's in a dry heat like we have out here. Is it a different kind of heat? You know, what is the purpose of that head there? Is it for his benefit or to increase his torment? I imagine that the head is there to disorient Max. Oh. Because okay. not only is he riding on the horse backwards, he's got this giant obstruction over his face. The idea is that you get sent out and into the desert and you're so turned around that you never find your way back. And I know yeah. there's a lot of people online that are very critical of this punishment. The idea that you're wasting a horse, you're you're using something that is very unique as a disposable item in punishing someone. But if you want to effectively banish someone so that you never have to see their face again, feel like this is a pretty effective way to do it. No, that's that's a good point. I hadn't thought about the disorienting uh, aspect of that, that, yeah, he's he's not going to be able to find his way back to Barter Town. So this really is true exile. You're, you're sent out away from us, and you are not going to find your way back here anytime soon. Okay. In the movie, the horse that they give him looks relatively healthy. But the novelization, which really does have a lot more detail about mm. this scene, does point out that the horse was old and sickly. So they give him just enough to get him far away from them, but not enough that he could possibly make it back. Right. The idea is that this horse, which is essentially a burner horse, <laughs> it is the 1989 Toyota Corolla <laughs> of horses. <laughs> At this point, we're just sending it out for its last death rattle. <laughs> it's interesting, though, because, I mean, it, it is potentially food for the pigs. And so I, I have to imagine that they look at this as, uh, I mean, which we've seen through this whole bit of Thunderdome and the wheel and everything. It very much is like a game show. And in this society that, that Auntie has created... It does feel like she has had to kind of come up with things to kind of create entertainment for the crowds and for the masses. And maybe this is the sort of thing that these different uh, survival communities are doing, are finding ways to to create that entertainment. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's disorienting for Max. And it's, it's a, okay, we're going to have to waste a horse that could have been used to feed the pigs, but it's going to, you know, rile the troops and get everybody excited about, about Barter Town and all. Oh, they've always got the best deaths over there. And uh, so it makes me think that this is just some big element that they do to kind of get people excited. I mean, you, you give them a reason to continue living in this uh, this uh, apocalyp apocalyptic world that they're in. Yeah, it's the cost of doing business. You got, yeah. you got to spend money to make money. Exactly. So they're going to spend money. They're going to spend resources on this death. But what they're gaining from it is keeping the people happy. Are you not entertained? <laughs> it kind of reminds me of another post-apocalyptic movie built around entertainment of the masses through incredible violence. 1987's The Running Man, uh -huh. starring our fan favorite mm. Arnold Schwarzenegger. But in that movie, they don't have Tina Turner. They have Richard Dawson yes, as, as good. Damon Killian. And he has concocted this whole death competition, I guess you could call it, as a, an opiate for the masses. And so I imagine that if Auntie had the ability to do a full-on Running Man competition, she would. But I don't think the infrastructure is there for it. Maybe that's what she's uh, hoping the sax player will turn into is is one of the the uh, killers in the game show, just like the <laughs> opera singer in The Running Man. <laughs> oh, Dynamo, gone too soon. <laughs> no, he actually probably overstayed his yes. welcome, but that's I, probably, another discussion yes. for another <laughs> movies by minute breakdown podcast. As Max has this giant head placed over his. The next thing that Iron Bar does is he just whaps the back of the horse 
and the horse takes off like a rocket. It's not necessarily following the little bottle of water in front of its face yet, it's just running because it's been hit, but as it's galloping out into the wasteland here, I'm noticing that it kind of looks like it's the middle of the day. And as we know, we ended the Thunderdome fight at dawn. So I imagine they probably spent the better part of the morning taking a break <laughs> from all the excitement. This probably is closer to the middle of the afternoon. Well, just like any, you know, TV production, it's like you got to get all your props together. You got to get, you know, everybody, everybody has to get out to town. Everybody get lined up on the cliff nicely. Everybody get their seats so that we're all set for the big swatting that's going to launch this thing. So, yeah, I can see it taking a couple hours of like, OK, everybody, we're going to start the show. But first, there's a few things we need to take care of. So everybody gets settled in your spots before we're going to bring out the horse. We're going to put Max on. But we've got to make sure everything is all set up. So yeah, to me, there's so much about the showmanship of everything that uh, happens in Barter Town. It easily, from the moment that that wheel stops spinning, it's like, okay, well, somebody's got to go get the horse. Somebody's got to dig the head out of storage. We've got to get some clean water. We're going to have to relocate a couple hundred people out to the edges of town. So people, we're shooting for a one o'clock launch on this one. Let's move it. Now, do you think Iron Bar gets to pick the head, or do you think he has just that one, and he's going to have to find another one down <laughs> yep, the Yeah, that could be hard labor. You go out into the desert, you find us that head. <laughs> uh, that's true. <laughs> We're going to send a troop out there, you guys. You know, if you're lucky, you find it. You know, Don't come back till you found that head. Uh, yeah, I... <laughs> You know, I, you figure <laughs> Iron, Bar, Iron Bar doesn't have a whole lot to do. Maybe that's, you know, one of his few pleasures is he gets to pit. Maybe there are multiple ones and he gets to, you know, give him half an hour to, to overview his inventory to think, well, which one's going to be the you know, right fit for this exile this time? Let's go with the one with, yeah, the quirky smile and the weird hat. Okay, let's do that. I like it. <laughs> so, yeah, we watch Max gallop out into the desert and that's... Pretty much it. That's the last we see of Max for pretty much the rest of this week. Ladies and gentlemen, Max has left the building. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That, he, he's gone beyond Thunderdome. It's uh, the, the movie's over. That's, yeah. <laughs> the title has been fulfilled. <laughs> Actually, it's Mad Max Thunderdome and Beyond. So it's what the more accurate <laughs> right. title is, right? Cause, that, yeah, that would have been more accurate. <laughs> but we did end the first movie with Max just kind of wandering out into the wasteland. That's true. So yes. this would not be an unprecedented ending. No. <laughs> right. You could, if you wanted to make an incredibly short movie... <laughs> right. is it a, this would not be feature length. <laughs> is it a better movie if we end it here? <laughs> you could have some narration pop yeah. up and be like, and that's the last we ever saw of the Road Warrior. <laughs> <laughs> he lives now only in our memories <laughs> what's crazy about this setup and we discussed this very early on in the podcast the idea that the story of the waiting ones is something that terry hayes just had and george miller was like oh we can turn that into a mad max movie so the entirety of act one as we mentioned earlier is just set up it's a cold open <laughs> You could throw some titles in this shot as Max is riding away into the distance. It's like an episode of Legion. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, as a side note, FX's Legion, excellent show. Excellent show. I have not checked that one out. Getting back to the movie, though. <laughs> we spend the last more or less four seconds of this minute looking at a nighttime shot 
of Bartertown, which means that Max got sent out into the desert, everybody went home, and nothing else interesting happened in Bartertown for the rest of that day. We are now in the evening, lights are shining, small fires are burning, and assumedly, Max has been riding that horse backwards through the desert all day and into the night. And into the next day. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it does seem <laughs> like quite the time jump, not so much for Bartertown, but really for Max. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because this is, this, uh, I mean, the the day when he is riding out into the desert is essentially the second day of the film, right? The first day he gets, uh, uh, it sets off the whole thing with, with him getting his his cart and, and camels stolen and he goes to Bartertown and he hooks up with Auntie and he ends up in Thunderdome. That, and presumably he never sleeps, except maybe he's taking a nap on the horse now. And that, because this is all day two uh, of our story. So it's, uh, so really uh, we, yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy how little time has actually passed in, in context of the story. Oh, true. So yeah, so that, I mean, it's been a solid 24 hours when they put him on the horse, because we, as we t- previously discussed, yeah, the end of the wheel is sunrise coming up. So he's had a, a, a very busy 24 hour period. And so, yeah, and he does get a chance to nap on the horse, which brings us back to nighttime at Bartertown, which appears to be just back to business as usual. Yeah. Lights are on, town's going, and that's sort of where we we, we, we uh, finish off here is just business as usual in Bartertown. Yeah. I can't speak for anything that's going to happen in the next minute we look at, but for the time being, for these specific four seconds, everything is just going A-OK. <laughs> Lights are lit, fires are burning. That's right. Yep. <laughs> so we're going to see at the very beginning of Friday's Minute that things are not necessarily A-OK. So we're going to put a pin in today's episode. We're going to come back on Friday. We're going to see that uh, Barter Town is going to suffer a bit of a blackout and it it's going to take us back down to Underworld where we get to see Iron Bar's particular management style and we get to hear how Master just doesn't really care for pigs. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Public storefront by clicking the store link. Join our Patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for minute 41 of Beyond Thunderdome. We'll see you next time.